Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week we choose an interesting new book on some corner of the world of sports, and we interview the author. This week we are looking at more than just a corner of the sports world. My guest is Andre Markovitz, and we are discussing his book, Gaming the World, How Sports Are Reshaping Global Politics and Culture, published in 2010, by Princeton University Press. Andy Markovitz has had a long and distinguished academic career. He holds named professorships at the University of Michigan and has been a guest professor at top universities in the U.S. and Europe. For more than three decades, he has been a prolific scholar of comparative politics and political economy. Yet, as he explains at the start of our interview, the work that has gained the most attention is his research into contemporary sports. And the class he teaches that draws the largest enrollment is his one on sports and society. Andy understands this attraction to his work on sports. As will be clear from the start of our interview, he is a true fan. He is an ardent supporter of Manchester United, the New York Yankees, and every team that wears the maize and blue of the Michigan Wolverines. In part, his work as a scholar of sports is an effort to understand his experiences as a fan of sports. This is what he tries to convey in his book, in his classes, and in our interview. That there are much deeper impulses and much deeper social and cultural trends that shape how we watch and talk and think about sports. Andy's book covers a wide range of topics related to contemporary sports, racism, gender roles, class differences, and global capitalism. He also discusses the more mundane aspects of global sports, like why European footballers wear the baggy shorts and body tattoos inspired by American hip-hop, or why the White Stripes Seven Nation Army is heard in stadiums around the world. We tried to cram a lot into our conversation, and it made for a lively episode. So let's turn to the interview. Andy, thank you for joining me on New Books and Sports. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm quite honored. So to start, I'll tell listeners that Andy holds named chairs in comparative politics and German studies at the University of Michigan. He's held visiting professorships at Stanford and Harvard, as well as universities in Germany, Austria, and Israel. And he's written and edited several books on politics in Europe and America. But it's, it's really been just in the last decade uh, that your research work has turned more to sports in Europe and America. So, Andy, I'll, ask, uh, or I'll start by asking you, what led you to move from researching topics like the political economy of Germany to researching global sports? Uh, being a fat cat tenured professor <laughs> who can pretty much do whatever he damn pleases. That's why. Uh, uh, you know, I'm glad that you're honest. So. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Um, well, I mean, actually, uh, there's a it's, it's, it's a it's a wonderful story. But there's a there's a story behind it. Uh, the story, obviously, all of my work is actually very autobiographical in mm-hmm. some ways, and uh, it started off by my being constantly puzzled how my world of um, precisely um, high-flying uh, fat cat professors in the social sciences uh, on both sides of the Atlantic were actually of, the, of literally almost the identical culture. We all read the New York Review of Books, yeah, yeah. and we all uh, followed Habermas and Foucault and this and that and the other thing and political economy. But the huge divider between Berkeley and Berlin, so to speak, was only one. And I'm talking, of course, only among male 
academics and my male world, namely to the ones in Berkeley, Mickey Mantle and uh, Joe DiMaggio and Mm -hmm. Montana and whatever were completely understandable codes and they knew what this meant and they used them and this was part of the world and the ones across the Atlantic had absolutely no idea, zero, none, nada. Mm -hmm. And for them it was, um, if at all, even though in Europe, for reasons that I probably won't have time to go into, uh, academics are much less into sports uh, or the equivalent of academics. But still, um, for them, it was Pushkash and uh, Fritz Walter and uh, um, you know, whatever, AC Milan, on and on. And I was very kind of puzzled by this all the time. And, of course, my work uh, was always comparative, a professor in comparative politics, and um, I implicitly and also explicitly looked at certain comparisons between the United States and Europe on many things, uh, not sports, to be to be sure. Uh, I wasn't a fat cat tenured professor then. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then in 1986, I was a professor, uh, get this, on uh, teaching on a, a, a cruise ship that went from Vienna <laughs> down to the Black Sea and then to Istanbul. And um, uh, this was for uh, um, uh, graduates of American universities, but actually uh, alumni, I should say, mm-hmm. and actually quite a, most of them quite old because it was very expensive, and there are these tours all over the place for various alumni. And um, interestingly, um, it was, of course, the time of the World Cup in Mexico, and the NBA Finals in, um, uh, in, in the U.S. between the Boston Celtics and the Houston Rockets. Mm-hmm. And what was so amazing to me is that my world on this boat for two weeks literally became an upstairs-downstairs, very much following the British, wonderful British soap opera uh, <laughs> that, that we all grew up, uh, grew up with. Uh, namely, upstairs, uh, the men around uh, in this world were, of course, all obsessed about the Boston Celtics and the Houston Rockets. And in fact, I remember missing some important tour of uh, the Budapest Art Museum because we're all busy trying to find an International Herald Tribune to find out what the what Game Three was or whatever. At the same time. Late at night, at 1 a.m., I descended into the bowels of the boat and hung out with Russian, Ukrainian, and Bulgarian waiters, sailors, whatever, mm-hmm. um, who, with whom we watched the World Cup from Mexico. And um, I, I actually speak a lot of languages, but I do not speak Russian or Ukrainian or or, or Bulgarian, but yet there was a common language. Mm-hmm. Uh, even watching um, uh, teams that had nothing to do with these countries—I don't mm-hmm. know Mexico playing Paraguay or something—and I was just sort of really struck by this. And um, I went back to then I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I had this summer free, sort of, so to speak. And I wrote, sat, sat down, and I wrote an article, researched an article which became, which was called "The Other American Exceptionalism: Why Is There No Soccer?" Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it was, uh, I loved doing it, and then to my amazing surprise, I was invited to deliver this paper at the very fancy-schmancy State and Capitalism Since 1800 uh, study group at the Center for European Studies at Harvard. Um, and first of all, I was amazed that you know, I would be invited with this topic. I mean, I was a member mm-hmm. of the center, but still, this was, you know, really a high-flying, cutting-edge stuff in political economy. And not only was I invited, but, but the audience, it was packed, totally packed. And people just really loved the discourse, the, the, debate, the, the debate, and took this very seriously. Make a long story short, the article was published, and to this day, it's my most successful article in terms of it being having been translated, I think, into 12, but maybe more languages, Persian, Hungarian, whatever. And so, clearly, uh, you know, I really had tapped into something mm-hmm. in the sense of looking at sports, not in a micro way, uh, the way it had been for a long time, namely injuries or, or kind of often psychological issues, which is perfectly fine. And and, and, and sort of kinesiology and so on, but really looking at sports as a form of larger sort of macro societal uh, questions about what it has to do with the working class and 
uh, with sequences and so on and so forth. And this then um, led me um, to use my fellowship at the very fancy Center for Advanced Study in the Center for Advanced Study at, um, at Institute, for, excuse me, Institute for Advanced Study in Berlin at the Wissenschaftskolleg in 1989-1999 to take that year and basically write uh, the book Offside, mm -hmm. and which became sort of a mini classic, as it were, and that sort of spawned this this um, as I always to this day say basically my world of uh, the, the sports world is sort of like a hobby in some mm -hmm. ways I mean I love it and I do it full time now on, on some level but of course I still teach courses on fascism and on the European left and whatever else and some other sports thing is like a a um, oh how should I put it it's sort of a, a kind of a very serious leisure endeavor um, and um, you know and it's been absolutely wonderful and uh, and I really think it's 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 uh, apart from being wonderful to me I really think that not I think I know that through the study of sport uh, you can really learn a lot about uh, um, basically the macro culture and uh, society uh, of uh, the place that you're actually studying. Mm -hmm. So probably a more interesting question in regard to your background is how a, uh, you talked about that European scholars are generally not as interested in sports as, as American professors. So I'll ask, how did a, a boy from Temeshvar who grew up in, in Vienna, uh, so certainly you, you're, a, you're a fan of, of European football, but you're also a fan of American football and baseball and basketball. So how did you become a fan of, of American sports? Uh, that's a very important question, and I think it's absolutely essential in understanding my Americanization. And when we arrived in 1960 in New York, uh, see, I argue that sports knowledge and sports fandom uh, is immensely path-dependent, meaning mm -hmm. the earlier you learn it, just like a, it's a sports to me are languages, mm -hmm. the earlier you learn, the better you speak it, and the, the more nuancedly you speak it, and the more aware you are of its beauty and of its meta, the meta part of the language. Um, and so, I, as I always say, I'm a very, very advanced and very knowledgeable and very fine soccer speaker. I'm a almost equally fine advanced uh, uh, baseball speaker. I mean, knew, knowing already yesterday that Tony La Russa made a big mistake taking <laughs> this guy Mott out. I mean, you just know this, okay? You just—I I don't know how, but you know, it's that you know why certain things in German are that, and this in English. It's and basically when we arrived, and I was 11 years old, my father took me to a Yankee game, and um, Yankee uh, Baltimore Orioles, and. Um, uh, 1960 Yankee Stadium, and this was uh, a, a, a very, very important uh, experience in my Americanization. And uh, interesting, I will never forgive and never um, uh, sort of one of the highest uh, uh, sort of thanks that I have to my to my father for many things. But one is that he actually realized. Uh, that this is an important language to learn mm -hmm. to become an American. And even though he himself was way too, too old and actually never really understood baseball and found it boring because it was not his language, just like Americans find soccer boring because it's not their language. If we were, if I were to speak Hungarian to you, you'd find it boring too. Mm -hmm. um, he still took me to these games, and, and so I, I learned baseball very early on, and then when we moved back to Vienna, I spent every summer, that's very important, in the U.S. So I became actually a huge Yankees fan and baseball fan because I spent the summers here. And I'll never forget listening to uh, the 1962 World Series and, um, you know, um, Willie McCovey's uh, line uh, drive to Bobby uh, Richardson and the Yankees winning Game 7 against the Giants. I listened to this on American Forces Network. Um, on this transistor radio late at night in my bed in Vienna. Mm -hmm. um, so baseball was very much part of this. Interestingly, you should ask, football is already, I'm not a, I mean, I'm a, I'm a fine football speaker, but not nowhere near of the nuance of soccer and baseball. Why? Because I learned it uh, when I came to Columbia and when I really finally came to the United States for good in 1967 as an 18-year-old. And um, yes, of course, I, I, but so that's actually, I noticed it that in terms of my fandom, 
um, yes, I became because I lived in New York, and uh, New York was America for me. So I will always will love New York teams. But my love for the Yankees is exponentially higher than for the Giants. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just uh, yes, of course, I'm a Giants fan, and but it's a, just a different. I can't explain this, but are those who of, of, of your listeners who will, uh, I think, some will understand this that the depth. And hence the depth of my love for Manchester United, which I have had since February 6, 1958, uh, that terrible day in Munich mm-hmm. when my father and I heard about this in Romania still. We were still in Romania. Um, this actually tied me to United forever. Mm-hmm. And uh, two years later, Yankees. And these associations are immensely powerful. And then basically football, basketball, hockey were... Um, you know, again, once you learn one language very well, and I would say that they're actually all in some ways related, and especially if you learn, let's say, a Romance language well, you speak French, then it's not so hard to pick up Italian and Spanish and Portuguese and, and whatever, Romanian. Um, but uh, will you know the poetry of those? Probably not. So yes, of course, I know my football and, 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 and hockey history and, um, you know, uh, go to the Hall of Fame, I know this, but really kind of understanding and feeling the game the way I do in baseball and soccer, no, not really. Um, uh, so when I go with a really advanced, uh, like our next door neighbor, who is the assistant general manager of the Pittsburgh Penguins, but lived in Ann Arbor, uh, when I go to a Michigan hockey game with, with him, you know, it's like a different level. I mean, mm-hmm. he sees things and tells me stuff that I just don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but so basically, it's a form of of uh, it's 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 a it's a form of communication, a form of passion, mm-hmm. um, and it's also, of course, something that is so essentially. How should I put it? It's it's a form, uh, certainly for men, uh, and probably only for men. It is a um, form of communication which is class transcending mm-hmm. and ethnicity transcending and all kinds of other uh, dimensions transcending. So, um, you know, when I arrive at Heathrow Airport and take a London cab and the cabbie is from, uh, you know, Gujarat or Punjab or whatever, and we speak cricket, mm-hmm. which I'm also conversant w- uh, about, not very much, but I know the game, I follow it, I, I'll be, of course, watching uh, next uh, Saturday night for us or Sunday morning uh, the Rugby World Championship final between France and the All Blacks of New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm an omnivore, uh, mm-hmm. and and um, I just, again, don't know these nearly as well as uh, association of football, maybe soccer or baseball, but it's something that is still important to me. And when I talk to this guy, this aforementioned cabbie, um, sometimes it's so so much fun that I hope that the traffic jam will last yeah, longer yeah. Uh, and I not be dropped off in London at my destination. And in a sense, you actually get out of the cab and there was a very human interaction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, and what sports provide, um, that is amazing because actually I know nothing about him, zero. I don't know... <laughs> You know whether he has kids or no kids, or or whether he's lonely, he's this, that, nothing. I actually know nothing about him. I just know that he understands why the West Indian, when the West Indian team of the 70s and 80s was so good, and that, and on and on and on. And you have a sort of human interaction, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, a certain form of dare I say, even intimacy. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a, you know, the, the, the barroom talk, the, 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 the something that a, a Punjabi cab driver and an American, uh, Romanian, Hungarian, Jewish uh, origin professor would not have in common, mm-hmm. zero. And yet they do because of this, um, you know, of, 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 of sports. And I think that's immensely powerful stuff. Yes, this is something I, I really found interesting about the book, and you you elaborated on this idea of sports as languages much more than than in the book. And uh, as you said, you just as with with spoken languages, you gain fluency if you're introduced to a sport as a language 
early in life, whereas you can gain a measure of uh, a functional knowledge or a conversant knowledge if you uh, begin to study a language later on. And uh, so you obviously have the uh, the approach of a polyglot, of someone who wants to learn languages, the languages of sports, and who are who's willing to, you know, thinking of, of when you start learning a spoken language. You have to start out and you make mistakes and people correct you. Uh, but it is really a, it requires a, a measure of bravery to talk with someone from South Asia about cricket if you're just uh, conversant in that language. But I want to ask you, because this is something you talk about in the book, why is it that many people, most sports fans, are resistant to learning a new language, whether in Europe or the United States? That's actually a very interesting question, and I, I'm, I'm not sure I have really... Uh, in some ways, I'm looking for the answer in this, because it's a certain form of tribalism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a... Um, and by the way, something that annoys me no end on both sides of the Atlantic. I, I, I can't quite uh, explain it other than ultimately, it's, uh, this, may be, this, is, this is conjecture, um, um, because actually ultimately people don't like to learn languages either. Yeah. And those that like to learn, listen, those that like to learn languages are disproportionately of the more educated, um, whatever, I mean, uh, you get the idea, more educated uh, classes, uh, more more educated levels of society, more cosmopolitan, they've traveled more, they enjoy, they're not threatened by something new. Mm -hmm. And a new language is threatening, and so are sports. And however, now we're coming into this important class issue, the great sports language speakers are disproportionately of a lesser class. Mm-hmm. Now, they're not cosmopolitan professors. In fact, in their case, it's a kind of rare even, you know, to be... You know, look, um, uh, let's be very clear, Bruce, back to the, your original question. I would never allow one of my doctoral students uh, to write or to start working on sports in a serious way. Mm-hmm. It's still not kosher. Okay, so it's, in this case, coming back to my originally, you know, you laughed heartily, which I uh, appreciated, uh, but, you know, it's still not, um, you know, the, all of these books are post-tenure books. I wonder how my academic career would have uh, developed, let alone blossomed, had, uh, had offside been written in the 1970s mm-hmm. or early 80s when I did not have tenure. I'm not so sure about this. So... Back to your point, I think that people are reluctant to learn Spanish and are reluctant to learn, um, you know, whatever. And in that sense, I mean, they they must or they have to and they do and and some people love to. And in fact, in sports, it's starting as well. But I think your gut instinct is one of threat. And I totally agree with you. Uh, I this always you know, brings up, and the other day, I, of course, I watched PTI, and, and um, uh, you know, I actually kind of liked Michael Wilbon, interesting guy, and, and mm-hmm. Northwestern graduate, and obviously good journalist, and he, you know, and he and Tony Kornheiser, whose shtick is, of course, to be much more kind of adversarial, and mm-hmm. basically coming across as some kind of uh, curmudgeon, uh, but both of them, at some point, it's like, oh, too much soccer. I, I, you know, and then Michael Wilbon, there was a question, you know, Manchester Chelsea, Manchester United Chelsea, and the thing, um, um, uh, you know, do you care? Said, of course not, because, of course, here we will watch the our football, okay? Yeah. The point is, he's right about that. Um, you know, most American football fans don't, or sort of don't care about Manchester and Chelsea. But the dismissiveness, and the same on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, this sort of uh, uh, dismissiveness, uh, kind of seeing it as inferior, uh, seeing it as boring, which of mm-hmm. course makes sense because you don't know it, their history, you don't know their their beauty, their meta language, all of the, all the context that makes them all so great. Uh, what is so interesting to me is that they're all seen as somehow facile, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, like how hard, I hear this in German, how hard can it be to hit a ball, you know, with this bat? How hard? 
very hard. Mm-hmm. Okay, very few people can. And if you hit it thirty percent, uh, you know, thirty percent with success, you're actually a hall of famer. You're mm-hmm. a you're a, you're a star. Okay. So the point is, or the other way around, how hard can it be to kick a ball? What's the big deal? So you have this attempt to code your own as unique to see it as uniquely beautiful and to see any other as clearly inferior and obviously in a uh, since sports is spoken much more by the people mm-hmm. and not by intellectuals who are in fact um, or should be and often are in fact by their very being much more cosmopolitan have traveled more and but those guys don't care about sports, or much less than uh, the people. And the people, of course, are threatened by new stuff. So uh, that's how I basically, it's a sort of a class analysis in my view, would explain why uh, you are spot on with your question, namely even in this day and age of globalization and uh, the ability to actually consume these across borders, uh, it's, still, it's, 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 it's still resilient, and it's still basically a niche. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sticking with the resistance to more cosmopolitan sports, you make a point in regard to uh, soccer's popularity in the United States and soccer's prospects in the future that for soccer, and I think you're referring specifically to Major League Soccer, for yeah. soccer to succeed in the United States, it must gain the support of the average male sports fan, whom you describe as, as Joe Sixpack. So could you explain why why you think that's necessary, and is it possible? Wow. Um, let's start with the necessary and the possible. <laughs> necessary because... Again, for historical reasons, all of these languages that we talk about were constructed in the 19th century. Um, in the modern, I mean, yes, soccer, all these ball, the, the bat and ball games, baseball has, you know, predecessors all the way to the Inca. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, and all the, the various footballs go back to Shrovetide and, you know, Hapostum in Rome. Again, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about really when they become sort of modern sport. And they become modern sport in the latter half of the 19th century with leagues, da, 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 da. and um, you know schedules, uh, uniforms, all that. And this was, of course, an immensely male world. Um, uh, the Victorian age, for again reasons I can't uh, you know, develop here, but uh, was an extra male world. In other words, uh, women are pushed even further into the private sphere, having a lot to do with industrialization and so on and so forth. So in fact, sports, um, not only in terms of their doing, but also, and here we're talking about the followers, in other words, mm-hmm. we're talking about the couch potato, and as, as you, your, 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 your question so clearly point out, and, and you read it very correctly, that's my world, that's what I'm actually explaining here, that's what I'm trying to explain, it's not so much the athletes, it's really... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really me. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's basically sports consumption. And, um, and this was very male. This is a world that it remains male. And it, it, it's a form of, again, back to the discourse in the London cab or in a Boston cab where, you know, we could have an unbelievably have often phenomenal conversation about the baseball of course i would never let on that of course i hope the red sox you know disappear <laughs> in boston uh, harbor uh, as a yankee but that but you know and then of course the guy would you know kill me but other than that it's basically again this amazing form of bonding in some ways it's a club and so it being this is still so much being a male world i would argue that for any newcomer to really be picked up and become part of the core and not a on the remain on the ever proliferating and that's important the ever proliferating fringe which has become more and more diversified and the core in this case is sort of becoming in if you will a tad smaller which of course also means that it becomes more defensive um for that to happen the carriers have to be men and um and have to be your regular um, you know, Joe Sixpack, uh, your sports guy, okay? And um, I'm absolutely convinced that this is sort of the, the one that you need for, to, 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 
to really uh, succeed. Now, is this forever the case? The answer, of course, is not necessarily. Um, it need not be the case because, of course, this core is indeed actually shrinking or, in fact, has shrunk massively. Uh, the working classes of all these societies are not miners and, uh, and, and uh, manual uh, skilled workers anymore. Uh, but are in the tertiary sector, by the way, increasingly female, uh, or in fact, majoritarianly female, uh, which in fact also I see as a form of yet another form of attack or a kind of a defensiveness on the part of men, which, by the way, I link in the book and in my mind clearly to, for example, soccer, uh, to the hooligan and violence in Europe, mm -hmm. where basically the, 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 the soccer stadium has become the last sort of bastion of unmitigated maleness mm -hmm. and where you can really let it out which you cannot in the rest of society and so in that sense um no i mean if women or in this case in america sort of by the way i have great hope with the latinos but our latinos are again not your core joe six-pack but with if women and uh, new social formations so to speak behooving the 21st century uh, really would embrace this sport, then in fact it might very well be a different social carrier that produces and uh, uh, catapults it into the core. Uh, but at the moment I don't see it. You know, those women are, you know, again, on many, in many ways totally to their credit, but women construct sport differently. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as I in this new book, uh, you know, even the sportista, who, which is a pun, of course, on fashionista, and I mean, I'm someone who not only loves fashion, but actually knows fashion. So even women who love sport and know sport uh, talk about it differently. If you want a much more multitasking, much more multilingual than their male counterparts. And, um, uh, you know, and, and so... As long as the commitment or this, if you want fanaticism or whatever you want to call it, uh, is not there with these new carriers, but only the old carriers have that, my argument is that you do need Joe Sixpack, maybe, um, you know, m more, more and more of a Hispanic version of Joe his, six, his Sixpack to, in fact, catapult soccer into the core of. Uh, uh, North American uh, sports culture. Um, that's it's, it's, it's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. And again, just I'm repeating myself. But if as, as long as women and are are not as committed to this, um, I don't see it uh, taking on beyond. Uh, I'm talking about on a quotidian day, on a, on a daily basis. I'm not talking about events. Events have become immensely successful. Mm -hmm. If you look at the television ratings of the World Cup, and certainly when the U.S. team is playing, or even the Women's World Cup, they're unbelievable. They're off the charts. Uh, some of the World Cup uh, ratings from 2010 were off the high, basically like World Series numbers, NBA Finals numbers. But that's, uh, to be crude about this, this is basically uh, event-driven, mm -hmm. and basically Jerry Seinfeld's, uh, you know, we're rooting for laundry. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're following the U.S. team, which is perfectly legitimate. It's fine. Uh, but, you know, it has to become something that people really worry about, what, you know, what the L.A. Galaxy are going to do in their derby against uh, Chivas, or, mm -hmm. you know, again, back to the sports radio, the the, the, the constant talk about why the coach is an idiot for mm -hmm. doing this and that and having Landon play more uh, slightly on the right than on the left, which, of course, he, you know, is a complete nonsense and on and on. And this is um, not the case yet. Yeah. Um, and I would argue, it seems to me, that the only way that this might, that it will happen uh, is if the men's national team wins a World Cup or, you know, loses in a final in a glorious game, uh, a four-to-three against Brazil or Germany or Argentina, um, um, then that will be the catapult that really will link up the amazing supply that exists, like your daughter yeah. and millions of others, that has really spawned 
and developed in this country since the early 19, the late 1970s, early 1980s, um, and link it to this, link the couch potato to this world, mm -hmm. uh, which, by the way, I'm becoming more and more and more convinced are almost, they're not totally separate, but there's only a minor overlap. Mm -hmm. uh, that really following sports the way I am and the way males are has only in some ways tangential relationship to it being played. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It really is a form of uh, obsession. It's a, it's, I would actually all, go even further, and, and you know, uh, this is terribly highfalutin, but I, it's sort of, it's almost like, a, it's like mind games. It's an intellectual pursuit. It's, it's like collecting, yeah. knowing all the presidents, knowing the capitals of the world. And in fact, in the new book, I spent quite a bit of time looking at the sociology of nerddom, <laughs> a certain form of male, um, uh, you know, male, precisely anti-sport. In other words, yeah. it's, it, you know, these, the, the guys who are into this, the fantasy and all that is really a form of, of a discourse, which if anything is not only non-sport, but almost, it, 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 I linked it to, a, really was struck by this and started doing a little research on nerds yeah. and how nerds, of course, are also, also highly male, uh, but of a very different dimension, namely, you know, kind of cerebral, uh, you know, out there collecting useless stuff, whatever. And that's what this to some degree is. And if you mm -hmm. look at the whole notion of fantasy football and fantasy and all of this, I mean, just the name alone uh, says it all. Um, this, again, by the way, is heavily, heavily male. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some women who play in leagues, no question. Uh, but, again, there's not enough research, but from what I could tell, most of them actually play uh, sort of together with men or, or, or you know, it's not, they don't, you know, and they play, absolutely, uh, but not the way, you know, some of my friends who are fantasy players to whom this is an all-consuming, uh, you know, uh, uh, pursuit. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask: What is the what is the European version of of Joe Sixpack? Is it the hooligan? And and what is oh. this male white fan resisting in Europe? Oh, the, well, the, well, the hooligan is one aspect, okay. uh, but but um, but basically, uh, no, it's your your male committed um, uh, soccer fan who, unfortunately by virtue of right-wing extremist politics that sees the soccer ground precisely because it's male, in the early 70s created a world which is very ugly. And where, by the way, the United States is massively ahead mm -hmm. um, in terms of racism being completely off the table. Uh, this is not the case because, in fact, obviously part of sports fandom is, of course, taunting. It's all about taunting. And it's all about making the opponent who visits your holy ground feel as uncomfortable as possible. And that exists in America, too, except with one major exception. You can't, for things that I'm immensely proud of, racism is off the table. There's no banana throwing. You cannot deride someone for his, for his race, um, which is an amazing it's, it's, it's amazing. I think that, that is phenomenal. Well, it's um, not limited to racism. Can I jump in? It's not limited to racism. racism. I think of, uh, you know, just a few weeks ago, Arsenal fans uh, taunted the player from, uh, uh, is he from Angola? Or no, yeah. uh, from Togo, who uh, the Arsenal fans were saying, you should have been the one shot in, in Congo, which isn't necessarily... Yeah, uh, isn't necessarily racist, but you have that tradition in, in European football. You know, you had talked about uh, uh, the tragedy with Manchester United and that yeah. that you have fans who are still rubbing salt in these tragedies that people that people suffer. I would say this is something you, you also wouldn't see in American sport, that kind of uh, vulgarity and, uh, you know, just jumping on someone's suffering to make a taunt. Yes, uh, totally. I totally agree with you. I mean, the, the, the constant, I mean, in fact, uh, Ferguson, uh, Ferguson, Alex, just this past Friday, I mean, uh, a week ago from today, you know, went on public, said, please, you know, it's a big game coming up with Liverpool, it's a North England derby, whatever, the biggest enmity, just please stop the chance about 
of Munich and the Trump mm-hmm. plane crash and you men, you fans, stop the, the you know constant chanting and making fun of the Hillsborough tragedy in which 99 people suffocated to death. Um, I totally agree. And look, you're in this case. Uh, one thing that I loved about I went to the Women's World Cup this summer. Mm-hmm. And one thing I love, Bruce, is that I noticed after only the second or third game, I said, why am I going to these games with, with, the, with just joy and it's fun? And, and I suddenly noticed, whoa, I'm going to these German soccer fields not feeling, you know, mm-hmm. on edge about yeah, yeah. something. You know, I, in the subways, it was fun. People were, you know, kissing, dancing, cheering. It was families. It was a joy. It was wonderful. Something that you don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I mean, you're right. I mean, the taunting, but but the taunting exists here yeah. as well, although not as not as brutally because you know, again, uh, for reasons that have something to do with the civil rights movement, with a form of public discourse, and, oh, very important, the presence, the greater presence of women yeah, in yeah, American yeah. venues. Mm-hmm. I mean, women, let's be very frank here, uh, uh, Bruce, you know, women are civilizing agents, yeah. and, and they, they just, you just don't. You don't, you behave less badly in a world in which your uh, sister, daughter, uh, cousin, uh, girlfriend, mother, whatever is around, and when they're not. Um, You know, there are some ugly taunts, uh, you know, trust me, at a, you know, Michigan-Ohio State game. Yeah. And, uh, you know, definitely, and, um, and actually probably more so in Columbus than in Ann Arbor, but in both. Uh, So the taunting is there. It's just what has become somehow off limits, mm-hmm. and there I agree with you. It's racism plus. I mean, I you know the, about the Angola. I did not know about this Arsenal uh, thing uh, that you explained, but I think it's still in some ways um, a form of uh, a form of racism. Um, you know, it's about killing, but it's 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 all over Europe. It's. Uh, it's become a bit better, a bit better in the top leagues, no question. They've cleaned it up to some degree. Uh, but in the lower leagues, it's still very bad. I mean, in eastern part of Germany, uh, absolutely abominable, neo-Nazi chants, uh, all of this. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, this is part of a, it, it not, not that women aren't part of it, uh, of course there are, and we know of neo-Nazi women as well, uh, but ultimately it's a form of unbridled maleness mm-hmm. and kind of m- being making these sports, uh, these hegemonic sports, uh, kind of a space of, uh, um, you know, uh, not only making the opponent uncomfortable, but sort of, uh, basically, a, a space in which one can say things that in every other realm of contemporary Europe are out of bounds mm-hmm. in terms of the state, in terms of civil society, in terms of your workplace, and on and on. And what else is the most sort of the, 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 the most outrageous taboo that you can constantly invoke? Obviously, the Holocaust. Uh, so the the the, the continued. Um, constant taunting about in various ways about the Holocaust, about gas, about this and that, which you have across the board, uh, Poland, in in Russia, in in Germany, in Holland. Um, you know, it's again very ugly, uh, very bad in that sense. I'm, I'm I'm glad that this is this is less the case in the United States, although the in the larger context of taunting which, of course, goes back to the whole issue of winning and passion. Mm-hmm. The reason, of course, there was no taunting, the reason why it was so wonderful to go to the Women's World Cup, because ultimately people didn't care. Mm-hmm. I mean, they wanted the U.S. to win, and they wanted their team to win, and, of course, Germany was completely uh, going crazy about the German team. By the way, I'm absolutely convinced one of the reasons they lost was because I've never seen pressure like this. Um, I mean, it was basically fait accompli. Uh, I arrived before the tournament. I was... 
giving lectures in Germany was basically a done deal that the Germans will win the World Cup. Mm -hmm. Done deal. Nothing that would happen with the men. And, of course, with the men, there would be much more debate constantly, you know, for months. And, you know, why the coach is an idiot and who should play. This did not exist with the women. Most Germans didn't even know the, the, 11, the, the starting 11. They didn't know them. Okay? So clearly it was important that, you know, they knew that they were a good side and they would win, period. And, you know, they lost. There was a bit of a kind of a letdown, nothing. And when I talked to the, um, I sort of followed the ESPN truck and occasionally um, talked to uh, Bob Lee, whom I know quite well, and also to Brandy Chastain. Um, uh, so I remember in Dresden um, waiting for them, and there was this guard, uh, this German uh, security guard that the ESPN hired to follow the truck around. And so I talked to him a little bit, and I said, so how, is, how has this been? I said, oh, my God, this was the easiest gig I've had in, ever. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? He said, it's wonderful. I said, have you ever, I said, was there ever any trouble? I said, trouble? Are you kidding? I mean, you know, people dance around and come paint and, you know, ask one to, to see Brandy and she signs autographs. And, and it's just, there it was nothing. Hmm. So last night, it was the, the night after Germany lost uh, to Japan, surprise, to everyone's chagrin and surprise. The worst that happened, like at 4 a.m., some drunk guy kind of started berating Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, mm -hmm. and really started misbehaving and, you know, ranting and raving at the German government. I mean, he, this was his only sort of, I mean, <laughs> is it what happened? Did you have to kind of wrestle him? I said, no, 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 no. We just put him in a taxi and sent him home. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's a different world completely. Yeah. And because ultimately the women's game just does not come close to riling the passions and I actually have just um, I'm, I'm really thinking about how in many ways being a real fan is bad on some level yeah, yeah. I mean I, I, seriously uh, you know I just uh, just just before you called me I was emailing a dear friend I said you know I love watching this Texas St. Louis series it's great I love it I you know I, I follow the strategy it's fascinating baseball I don't, you know, leave the television. I don't turn it off. I don't run around. I don't sit in a corner. I don't, uh, you know, swear. I don't berate people. I don't behave like a lunatic the way I do with the Yankees when they lost the Tigers. I was furious at Michigan and Detroit. I mean, they should think of, you know, not going to teach them. Whatever. I mean, complete lunacy. And it's so much nicer not to have these, you know, uh, primordial passions that are obviously so essential mm. to the sort of proliferation, but also the maintenance of this. And this obviously Joe Sixpack has uh, to the, the his sport and his team. And these are really, really serious. This is serious currency. And um, for this to be kind of challenged by a rival and maybe even superseded, uh, this is a tall order. I yeah. mean, this is not, not an easy gig. So you mentioned racism earlier with, with European fans. And uh, so we've talked about the resistance in the United States to soccer coming across the, across the Atlantic. And you talk about in the book various elements of sports culture that have gone from the United States across the Atlantic. And that's actually one of my favorite parts of the book in talking about baggy shorts and tattoos and so forth. But I want to about, talk about something. It, it's not discussed in the book. It's actually quite recent. A, uh, an export from the United States to European soccer, and that's the, the idea of the Rooney Rule from the NFL. And so I was wondering if, um, do you think this is something that would succeed in uh, the Premier League and in European soccer, uh, this type of uh, requirement that uh, football clubs interview um, black managers, candidates for, for coaching positions, for manager positions. Do you think is that something that will work in Europe? It's a very good question, and I'm glad you asked it because I actually use, want to use that example of how a, in, a, in a different uh, world in which I, which is a passion of mine, namely I've written a lot about anti-Americanism, and which I find uh, really, really um, 
powerful in Europe, but that's a different topic. But I think in, in this case, it's, uh, yes, I think it's a wonderful advance that the United States has, uh, that the Rooney Rule, uh, which means uh, uh, that you need to demonstrate that you've interviewed, of course, this still doesn't necessarily mean that the person gets it so that we know that even with the Rooney Rule, there's all kinds of kind of particularistic um, uh, uh, dimensions uh, that, in fact, can really undermine a universalistic intention. And uh, so let's, uh, this is by way of saying that the Rooney Rule, though great rule, need not ipso facto lead to the success that it's intended to, to lead to. Uh, so one can, in fact, circumvent um, uh, kind of progressive reforms. But the very fact that they exist is in and of itself important. Will this succeed in Europe? Um, very hard to say. Uh, I'm very impressed that, in fact, that they even looked at it mm -hmm. uh, and, and kind of realized it. Um, I would think that this would will succeed in the EPL. Mm -hmm. um, I'm much less certain that it will succeed in the Bundesliga or in Serie A um, or in La Liga um, because they are less tied in some ways to the American discourse. Mm -hmm. And don't forget, just like the folks that you and I kind of berated uh, earlier, namely our folks who are instinctively suspicious slash hostile mm -hmm. to soccer, believe me, the equivalent exists in Europe to anything American. Anything American, not only sports. A priori, whoops, it's American, so there will be a resistance to it. Um, and then kind of, you know, uh, little by little, it kind of seeps in. It really is a question of what these associations want. I mean, don't forget that in this case, it's not so much soccer is, unlike the American sports, is not only run by the leagues, it's run by these associations, mm -hmm. which is, by the way, that's another thing which is a little bit foreign to Americans now, that, uh, you know, there is something above MLS. Mm -hmm. Hello? What is this? I mean, is there any, anything above, you know, uh, David Stern? No, it's the, I mean... It just isn't, and uh, you know, American, you know, um, um, basketball USA is a different construct. It's mm -hmm. very, it's like orthogonal to it. It's really not above it. And um, these, if the associations take this seriously, um, the Rooney Rule um, might very well become uh, important. Uh, and um, although, of course, one would have to look at the quantity of how many. Uh, uh, sort of black head ma managers in this case in the soccer world, black managers are really available because I think the quantity is important, uh, as in everything. Uh, if it's just one or two, it can easily be sabotaged. If it's more, it won't. It, 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 it's less sabotaged. And since um, there are many more uh, blacks in the UK than they are in Spain or in Italy or in Germany. I see that as the most successful uh, transfer. Well, we're almost out of time, Andy, and I, okay. I want to turn away from the book to actually ask about the course you teach at the University of Michigan, the course called Sports, Politics, and Society, and I know it's a, it's a popular course that draws a lot of students. And I want to ask to close, um, in, in teaching that class, what are – what – pieces of knowledge or questions do you want your students to leave with at the end of the semester to make them more educated sports fans? Oh, wow. Um, great question, Bruce. And uh, let me say that my heart and what I really want it to be is that they not be more educated sports fans, but that they be more educated consumers and viewers and analysts and critics of mm -hmm. modern culture in advanced industrial societies. Um, so, and interesting that you should ask, you should ask this because in fact, 
very by the week two or three, I always notice, and I've taught this course in various guises, different titles, but I, um, I don't know, six, seven times already. And invariably, Bruce, there is always by week two or three, there are a number of men, men here, very important, male students, who you can see are getting a little restless. <laughs> sort of like, you know, they kind of thought, and, you know, we're still talking about English working class history and... <laughs> And, you know, uh, what is the modern state and how is it there? And, you know, we read Weber and whatever. You could just see, like, hello, Markovitz. I'm one of the, I thought we're schmoozing Yankees in this course. <laughs> and we're talking, uh, you know, Michigan football. What is this? What are you doing here? Okay. And I want them to walk out of that course understanding, uh, what a modern sports, how modern sports are, what the organization of the NHL is, um, what that entails, uh, uh, what, how big it is, yet also how small it is, uh, that they contextualize this in terms of how this is part of their modern existence as citizens. That's what I want, that I could care less. Um, you know, in terms of, by, by the way, again, some of the men, uh, uh, because actually for the first time I actually even teach a section, because the honor section in this new from the, for the configuration, um, all the, the course always has sections, and the honor students now have to be taught by the professor. Perfectly fine. I mean, it's amazing. You should see what goes on here. I mean, I, I always walk in, I said, okay, any questions about the readings? What, uh, silence. And the, okay, and the first question. Uh, you know, so what do you think um, should happen with this guy? From I mean, it's always about something sports. And what is also very interesting, and yesterday I have only one woman in this section, and we, we went over the papers because of the section person. I grade the papers, and we went over them, and it was what is modern about sports and how are sports profoundly also pre-modern. Very difficult topic. Some of them had difficulties with it. Some of them did not. And this woman came in, and we talked, and at one point said, you know, it's very hard for me in this section, because, not also because I'm the only uh, girl in the class, and I love your, uh, your, your, your lectures. I love the reading. I learned so much. But in the section, it becomes, and my words now, basically, you know, guy talk. In other words, it's not about understanding modernity, the conflicts of modernity, you know, the role of charisma that sports clearly convey, uh, the importance of tradition, um, how ultimately what we love about sports, even though these are unbelievably modern, legal, rational uh, structures, but what we really walk away with is precisely uh, the charisma, the the uniqueness, the, 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 the feeling, which actually has a very little to do with modernity. Um, uh, that's what she wants to talk about. So in fact, whereas the guys actually always revert some, I don't think not only because to show that they're better, because that's what they associate sports with. Okay, they basically want to talk statistics, this, that, who will, including, by the way, also soccer now. Absolutely, some of these guys are completely up on Arsenal and, and what Arsenal's problems are and why Wenger should be fired and whatever else. And that's actually what I don't want the course to be. So my hope is, and I think I've succeeded fairly well, to, con to sort of show them that via sports, you can really get a very interesting angle and insight into the complexity of modern society. And uh, when, you know, if, if uh, I, you know, some student... Uh, goes to a game two years hence and says, oh my God, you know, this is, it, oh wow, he's right. You know, I learned about this by reading Weber and Durkheim and oh, I remember this. And, yes, and then um, what happens with these charismatic moments, great. Or when they really look at how Europe is different from America in terms of racism and the next time they go to an Arsenal game and see or hear what you just told me or uh, compare it to their experience in Philadelphia, uh, great. That's what I want to uh, in the course. Not so much, you know, their, um, you know, if, if if those that have no knowledge about 
the details of sports come to the class, of which there are a number, and walk away not having the details of the, uh, of the sports, that's perfectly fine with me. I mean, I'm not, I don't want them to know batting averages. Uh, I don't want them to know this. I do want them to know that sports are immensely meritocratic. Sports are what you bring on the field. And if that is great, you are, in fact, rewarded for this. And sports is a very important medium for an upward mobility. Mm -hmm. if, I, if I, That's what I want them to take from the course. Mm -hmm. So to finish, I'll ask, what are you working on now? Well, I'm working on, uh, the, again, uh, this book on, on I finished this. I just finished this book on, 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 on uh, female sports fans and uh, how... Um, uh, you know, they are uh, different, how, in fact, sports remains in many ways the last bastion of uh, male exclusion, um, precisely by virtue of it being so democratic, uh, I argue, and actually we argue, I had a wonderful former undergraduate woman who actually, the book is about her in some ways, I mean, and explaining this sports-obsessed young woman who's not the Michigan Law School, University of Michigan Law School, and how, uh, you know, how precisely because there is no credentialing in sports fandom, meaning um, there is no, um, um, you know, sports university that make, gives you a credential, you in fact are, anyone can be an expert, and everyone, every bar guy is an expert. And uh, you are, uh, in fact, uh, uh, very easily, the, the, the bar of entry is not clear, and the barrier can always be shifted, and my argument is that actually men always do, and they constantly. So I interviewed a number of over 50 women about this, and what is so interesting, and also women sports journalists, is that uh, for women, the barrier of entry is actually constantly raised and never clear. And unlike, and I, I looked at other highly male-coded uh, 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 professions or entities such as mathematics or physics, or um, there, at least there is a credential. So a woman walks into a room full of male physicists, they might not like her, but she comes with, you know, BA, Caltech, PhD, MIT, case closed. She is a credentialed physicist. There ain't no such thing in sports speak or sports talk. There is no MIT and Caltech, and, you know, being a, a, a fan and or a being knowledgeable. And this leads to this very, very amorphous form of entry in which, in which women actually are not ever taken seriously. And so that is a big part of the book. And then, of course, the whole notion of for women, the whole issue of beauty uh, which is a very, and the whole notion of body and beauty, which makes it very, very complicated and difficult. Uh, on the one hand, um, you know, beauty being a, a necessary uh, qualification to become a sports journalist in the visual media, yet if you're too beautiful, it immediately disqualifies you as a babe. In other words, beauty is inversely related to any kind of intelligence. And so that's what the book is about, and, and, and I, I loved writing it. It was great, great fun and very, very interesting research. And then I'm also working on this one thing about I'm fascinated about home field advantage, and I don't know how, you know, how I'll approach that, but I've already collected a lot of stuff on that. And above all, this thing about how status of an institution bleeds over into its sports entity. So the hypothesis being that universities in the United States with higher status are there and their main rival uh, that is less of lesser prestige, uh, those fans are much more unforgiving and much more taunting and much more uh, rabid and much more angry. Um, so in, in other words, yet another American exception, namely uh, the world of college sports, uh, in which uh, aspects of institutional identity, which have nothing to do with the sport per se, play a crucial role in your existence as a fan. And uh, this is a, I mean, everybody says it's a wonderful project. I have no idea how to ultimately be able to do this 
short of having millions of dollars and surveys and but at the moment looking at websites and uh, you know I have no idea where this will lead you know whether this will be just one article or mm -hmm. a book again no idea mm -hmm. but again um, you know um, the beauty of all this is that uh, as we start in the beginning you know I'm a <laughs> fat cat <laughs> you know full professor and I I you know I it's 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 amazing I'm you know um, enjoying every minute of it great questions and uh, I think also important in terms of uh, larger issues of social science well you certainly don't fit the uh, the stereotype of the fat cat tenured professor who's just kind of uh, sitting sitting idly in his office enjoying the fact that he can never be pushed out no matter how little work he does so so you're certainly very busy and and uh, I'll look forward to the, in particular the book about women in sports I look forward to that so but uh, Thanks a lot for being on the program, Andy. This was a book. I mean, we just barely scratched the surface of uh, you know the notes I made, the, the questions I had. So uh, I found it really to be a, a fascinating book. I enjoyed it very much. So thank you for coming on the program. Oh, thank you very, very much, Bruce, for having me. I just uh, totally enjoyed this. Uh, um, the time flew by. Uh, way too, way too fast. We should continue it <laughs> in this forum or others. You've been listening to an interview with Andre Markovitz about his co-authored book, Gaming the World, How Sports Are Reshaping Global Politics and Culture, published in 2010 by Princeton University Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from public policy to popular music. If you like what you heard here, please link to the Facebook page of New Books and Sports, where you can offer your comments and find links to thoughtful, shorter sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and enjoy your week. <laughs>